I was 20 feet off the ground with a good friend, a carpenter's hammer, and a large box of plastic-capped roofing nails and a very large tarp. The previous week, water rained down on us, and surprised worshipers distributed any available container to reduce the damage. Someone asked for volunteers to attach a large tarp to the roof so that we would have time while the insurance company looked at the situation. So there we were, intentionally making an already steep roof even more slick, more precarious, and more dangerous. At times like that, you contemplate big questions. Maybe it's no surprise I was thinking about what it meant to live by faith. I was thinking about how I could go do this particular task, the hammering in of this next nail through the grommeted hole in the tarp and into the roof. How do you do that by faith? How do you hammer by faith? How do you do anything by faith? How do you live by faith? I knew I trusted Christ. I believed his promises. But it seems the preachers left out the part about how to actually live by faith day to day. We're going to look at Galatians to answer that question. How do we live by faith? We'll be looking at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 6, not the whole chapter. I couldn't fit it all in. And as we look at it, we'll split it into two sections, the first two verses and then the last four. And I'll just read them as we get to them. First, though, it would be helpful to summarize Galatians so that we can better understand the question, how do we live by faith, and the answer. Paul wrote to the Galatians because of a report he heard about them. The report seemed to say that they were accepting the teaching of people who were adding conditions to the gospel. Specifically, it seems there were Jews who taught the Gentile Christians that it was necessary to obey the law in order to be saved. They seem to have added circumcision, dietary laws, laws about what day you could or should do certain things, and others as well. Because of this evil, Paul wrote his most confrontational letter. Paul was beside himself with anger, with confusion, and with a passion for the gospel and the believers. If we had to summarize all of Galatians, we might do it like this. One, you are in danger because the evil perversion of the gospel being taught. Two, the gospel teaches that you were saved by faith alone and that you live by faith alone. So, three, here again is how to live by faith, walking in the Spirit and sowing in the Spirit. Right in the middle of Paul explaining the true gospel is where we pick up our passage today, Galatians 3. Verses 1 and 2 say, O foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's question of rebuke was about how they received the Spirit. Did they earn him? Did they do some work to entice him? Did they keep the law to secure him? Those were ridiculous answers. Idiotic thoughts that sinful people could manipulate a holy God into giving them the Holy Spirit. He came to them by hearing with faith. Because we're jumping into the middle of Galatians, let's also ask, what did that faith look like? Here you see two chairs. There's a third that I'll add in a moment. It's imaginary. This is the chair from, that you have the option to sit in every week. On this side of my makeshift chair is going to be our imaginary chair. These are the two contrasting pieces. And right in the middle, this is our makeshift chair. We're going to use these chairs to figure out exactly what Paul means by faith. Now, the imaginary chair you don't need to see. I realize that some people sitting on that side can't see my fancy uh, makeshift chair, and this is what it looks like. Then, the chair that is sitting here in the front is the third one, in case you can't see it. The imaginary chair represents faith in faith. There is no object of faith. It may give people something to talk about, this imaginary chair, or something to imagine or contemplate, but when you try to rely on it, when you try to sit in it, it's not there. You can't trust it. In fact, it's not that you can't trust it, it's that there's nothing to trust. The makeshift chair represents having faith in an object that you can't trust, that you can't rely on. Some of the preachers and teachers of the Galatians were basically offering the Galatians a chair like that. There was an object for their faith, but it wasn't at all trustworthy or reliable. The Galatians were unable to obey the law perfectly. And as Paul explained, there were only two options, either living by the law, which meant perfect obedience, or living by faith in Jesus Christ's perfect obedience. Neither of these first two chairs will hold you. The object of your faith in either of them is unfounded. They will fail you. If, you, if your object of faith is faith itself, like the imaginary chair, or if the object of your faith is something you made by your own obedience, like this makeshift chair, you will fall. There must be an object of your faith 
and it must be able to hold all that you trust it with. This last chair is able to hold your weight as we demonstrate each Sunday. But who do you trust with the weight of your sin and failure and guilt and ignorance? That is where Paul is pointing us. Only Christ Jesus, the God-man, through his work of total obedience, even unto death on a cross, is able to bear the weight of all that keeps us separate from God. When we ask, how can I live by faith? That is the faith we're talking about. Christ and him crucified is the object of our faith. And if we have heard the good news with faith, if we have heard the good news with faith, then that is why you receive the Holy Spirit. I'd like to pause after verse 2 and take a moment to consider Paul's tone. Paul was angry here. He was angry with the Galatians, confused by them, and downright hostile towards some of the teachers and preachers that were teaching the Galatians. But why such an angry tone? Do you remember the story of Jonah? We normally remember the giant fish eating Jonah or swallowing him. Do you remember what Jonah was like before that? When God commanded him to love his enemy? He was angry. Do you remember what he did after the town of Nineveh repented? He stormed off in anger. Do you remember what he did after the plant died that gave him shade? He was angry. Those weren't the right things to be angry about, though. God was angry at the sin of Nineveh. And he sent a message of judgment against them so that they might repent. Hopefully, after the book of Jonah ended, Jonah learned more to be like God, being angry at sin and overjoyed at repentance. Paul was angry at the Galatians for their sins, but unlike Jonah, Paul wanted to be overjoyed by their repentance. That's why he sent such a difficult letter with such a tone of anger and confusion behind it. Paul was teaching them to identify their sin. He wanted them to understand the evil of it, the separation from God that it brought. By adding laws to the gospel, they were changing the gospel message from one of God's complete satisfaction until com one of God being completely satisfied. His wrath and his desire for holiness by Jesus Christ into a message that was not satisfied until they kept the law. They were changing the gospel message from one where the Holy Spirit was given to them into a message where the believer did not need the Holy Spirit, but needed only to keep the law. They were changing the gospel message into a message about their obedience instead of a message about the obedience of Christ Jesus. The tone of the letter was supposed to push the Galatians into seeing their sin 
and repenting of it, like the message of Jonah to Nineveh. Paul's tone also helps us see our need to search out our own sin. As Paul wrote in Romans 1 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We know our sin touches every part of our lives and all of our actions. The Bible tells us so in passages like Genesis 6-5. Speaking about all humanity, it says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things. And Matthew 7:11, when Jesus spoke to his own disciples, saying, "If you then who are evil." So we know our sin goes deep. Still, search out your sin so that you may know as much as you can but also examine it for the sinfulness of it. Make the effort to hate your sin. Don't simply ignore it or try to get over it or rush past it. I think when we sin, we're surprised and we want to get on the other side of it, but too quickly. Take time to loathe sin. Really hate your sin for the separation from God that it creates. Look at your sin, just as Paul took the Galatians through the sinfulness of their sin. How did it diminish the gospel? How does your sin elevate you and ignore the work of God? But, please hear me on this too, don't get stuck there. There's a temptation to get stuck seeking out your sin and hating it. It's good to be there but not to be stuck there. We'll return to this soon because there's more to living by faith. Paul reminded the Galatians that they had the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith, the faith we've been thinking through. Then he continued on. So let's read the next section of Galatians 3, this time verses 3 through 6. Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Have you ever thought about why we call the Spirit the Holy Spirit? We add holy to the front of his name. Is it just to make sure that we know which spirit we're talking about? Surely that's not it, because sometimes the spirit is mentioned without the word holy in front. Maybe it's because he's holy. But we don't call the Father Holy Father and the Son Holy Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit are holy, completely holy. 
Could it be that the Holy Spirit is the most intimately involved in making us holy, conforming us to the nature of the, sin, of the Son? That's the best explanation I've heard. The Holy Spirit is often named as holy because it's his particular job, making believers holy, more like Christ. In verse 3 of Galatians, Paul asked them how exactly they thought they were being made perfect. How were they being made holy? The start of their journey toward holiness was receiving the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith. Where did they think they were after receiving him? Did they think the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to them as a gift that they didn't need? They had suffered for their faith. They had seen great works of ministry done among them. How did they think living by faith went? It continued as it started. They were supplied with strength to endure suffering by hearing with faith as the Holy Spirit worked within them. Nothing changed from the time of their justification, the time they were declared righteous by the Father because of the work of the Son, and therefore received the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. They were still every bit as dependent, every bit as in need as they were at their first receiving of the Spirit. Paul wrote to the Philippians what we have as chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Paul was encouraging the Philippians just as he was here rebuking the Galatians. The way you continue on in the faith is to work with fear and trembling. How is that possible? It is possible because God, the Holy Spirit, is working in you, both to desire the work and actually put the effort forth to do the work. They were completely dependent on God when their hearts were changed and they came to Christ. Nothing needed to change for them to live by faith. This was the lesson even from the Garden of Eden. Every aspect of our lives is completely dependent on, on God. Even before the fall, you want to know who you are? Look to God. You want to know why you're here? Look to God. You want to know what to do with your day? Look to God. You want to know which tree to eat from? Look to God. There's nowhere else to look. But it goes further than that. What about after the fall? After the fall, a new area of need was added. Adam and all of us whom he represented were now guilty before a holy God. Who could deliver us from the just wrath of God? There's nowhere else to look. Who could mediate between God and man? There is one mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. 
there is nowhere else to look. Who could change us into the likeness of Christ Jesus? That is the particular work of the Holy Spirit. There is nowhere else to look. Given this continual revelation from God about our original and ongoing need and dependence on him, how do you live by faith? As I said earlier, first, you have to have the faith. Christ and him crucified must be the object of your faith. Put your faith in him and you will be saved. How does the believer live by faith? I'd like to offer a series of applications to consider, all completely dependent on God, especially through his continual work in the Holy Spirit. We listen to the tone of Paul's letter to the Galatians, and by his example and the help of the Holy Spirit, we examine ourselves for sin and the sinfulness of sin. Now back to where we left off before because we could not get stuck only searching out and hating our sin. Knowing that sin touches every part of our lives and actions sends us back into the arms of God in two ways. First, for his forgiveness of each and every sin, even for sins we don't know about, all paid for by Christ on the cross. Second, and this was one of the eye-opening moments I'd been looking for on that roof attaching a tarp, that God will still use our works and his sovereignty to redeem our works into something that perfectly glorifies him. In one way, we bring our good works to him like a small child brings his or her art project to a parent. The enjoyment of the gift and appreciation of the effort is there. But because we bring them to God, God is the one receiving them, and he has also been helping us with them. And he is able, by his sovereignty, to make them into an acceptable and glorifying gift. They end up framed and situated and explained by God for his glory. And his glory shines through them just as much and much more than we'd hoped in doing them. So we have confidence in his forgiveness and in his ability to use our works even though we damage them with our sin. Knowing your need for forgiveness, ask for it. Jesus is continually inviting you to be forgiven. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In 1 John 1, 9, John wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then having asked for forgiveness, receive it. It's easy to make the mistake of asking for forgiveness, but not accepting and trusting that you have been forgiven. 
We have the promise we just read in 1 John 1.9 and in many other passages. We can trust that God forgives us when we ask. And when we have confidence in God's use of our works, even when they are mixed with sin, then we have confidence not to grow weary of doing good works, confidence to walk in the good works that God has created for us. Your reception of forgiveness and confidence in God's use of your efforts should then lead you to thanksgiving and worship. Just as sin continues to mark every aspect of our lives, deliverance from sin by the completed work of Christ and the ongoing work of the Spirit should mark our lives even more. Maybe you've spent the sermon so far listening for what we normally call the big idea. If the question is, how do you live by faith, then I'd summarize the big idea as, know the object of your faith, Christ and him crucified. Know that your sin touches every aspect of your life and live in the pattern of dependence on the Father, forgiveness through the Son, confidence by the Holy Spirit, and thanksgiving to God in all of it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do praise you because you are the one whom we are dependent on. You have sent your son Jesus that we might have forgiveness through his death and resurrection, through his office as mediator and high priest. You have given the precious gift of your Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And we pray that these would just begin to ignite our hearts to worship, to worship and praise you for your great generosity, for your wonderful gifts. Amen. At the Lord's Supper is one place where we're invited specifically to live by faith. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And so I invite you to examine yourselves that you might know your sin and seek forgiveness before eating the bread and drinking the cup. Then we focus on Christ, as Paul says in verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim to ourselves, each other, and to anyone watching that Jesus is King of all, victorious in his death and resurrection, and that he is returning to claim his people 
and set right all justice.